Starry Voices. Demystifying Zero Trust is a podcast created by Istari, a global cybersecurity platform. At Istari, our mission is to help create a digitally resilient future for the businesses we work with. This podcast series explores the strategy of Zero Trust as a way to help build cyber resilience. In this first part of two, we talk with Micah Heaton, M365 XDR Solutions Director at Blue Voyant about getting started with the Microsoft Security Stack and Zero Trust. Thanks very much, Micah, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. I'm sure the audience does as well. Considering uh, where you came from and how Blue Voyant has started to deliver Microsoft solutions in the security space and in Zero Trust, how have you seen organizations adopt Zero Trust, especially with the Microsoft stack? Hey, Don. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to contribute today and appreciate your willingness to have me on. This will be a good conversation, good discussion. Zero trust is definitely a, a word and term that we're hearing quite a lot. And I think that's probably for good reason. I think the biggest thing that I see folks that make investments in Microsoft technology, especially Microsoft security technology, are looking for opportunities to have a consistent experience, a continuity of experience across the spectrum of their digital estate. And I think what that means, sometimes security is a bit of an obstacle and and definitely a bit of a downer. I don't know that anybody enjoys too much putting up roadblocks. And the idea is that if we can put guardrails in place more often than roadblocks and folks understand how to get to the right decision making, then they have a better experience. So With respect to your question, I think the Microsoft story is really more about helping corral folks to the right decision making. And I think that organizations uh, look for opportunities to do that more often than not. And maybe just a quick example of that, and and we can get um, really into the mix of it is, a lot of times when we're confronted with security, it's usually words like forbidden or not allowed or you do not have access. So there's not always a remediation option, right? It's just this door that's locked that you can't go through. And a lot of the security technology that's associated with Zero Trust for Microsoft is about proper end user messaging that will say things like, hey, you're in a country that isn't allowed to be in, or you don't have multi-factor authentication configured, or you're on a device that is unknown to the organization. So I think Ways that organizations are adopting zero trust with respect to Microsoft are really just about putting the proper kind of framework in place so folks can get to their destination. They just need to understand the steps that are involved in getting there, if that makes sense. I think that does make sense. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about that end of security, the messaging end, the uh, communications to the end user. In my career, as I was working for various companies, developing security strategies and things like that, communications was always a key component of program change, of user impact, of messaging to users when they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. And it's good to hear from your point of view that, you know, that they the message from Microsoft is just as important as the actual capability of securing an endpoint. It's vitally important. And it's interesting. It's so important that companies will oftentimes hire out 
the responsibility of putting that communication in place. A lot of times we see that where organizations put training paths in place for folks who maybe struggle a little bit with things like phishing. Sometimes they'll hire an organization to put that kind of training apparatus in place if, if somebody fails the kind of attack simulation or the exercise because that end user messaging is critically important. And something that's really manifest, I think, over the past couple of years is organizations are dealing with a situation where circumstances forced their hands. Maybe they had an adoption timeline for the cloud or the security technologies that they wanted to put in place that was 18 months down the road. And with so much of the workforces worldwide transitioning to remote work, that is a very fine balance for security admins to deal with protecting the organization while maintaining the remote workforce's quality of life. And if you just put guardrails and obstacles in place without socializing the initiatives, especially around zero trust, and it's hard for workers to stay productive or really understand what they're supposed to be doing. I've personally really appreciated that there is this additional kind of importance being put on end user messaging and building out end user messaging campaigns as you're socializing the policies that you're putting in place. So. I, I agree with you, though. I don't. I, it isn't as often mentioned, and I, I don't actually think that security admins are super malicious or really enjoy putting these things in place and making life difficult for end users. It just uh, historically hasn't really been of paramount importance to help folks understand how to get from point A to Z. Really, just that you're not allowed to go there. And I like that's changing. Yeah, that's an important distinction there. That. The folks who are putting the controls in place, they have the best of intentions. They just want to prevent you from doing something that could potentially harm the organization. But they are engineers, scientists, security folks. They're not communications folks generally. So having a communication organization or an outside organization, like you mentioned, involved in drafting that communication and forming that communication correctly so that people don't feel like they're being attacked when they accidentally do something that they're not supposed to be doing, whether or not, like you, what you're saying, you're connecting over a network you shouldn't be, or we don't know what this device is. Maybe it's the right device. Please, please contact us so we can get this resolved. That messaging is so vital. And I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges to any security program is getting the messaging right. What do you think about that? I agree. I totally agree. One of the benefits of the Microsoft side of this story is that a lot of this is, is somewhat pre-written or it's made quite accessible to change kind of the terms and conditions of whatever the policy is. So there's a template or framework for you to be able to adjust your messaging. So I totally agree with that. And I think as we explore a little bit more in today's conversation that, that we'll, we'll probably be able to unpack that a little bit along the way. Yeah, I think it's one of the many things that makes the Microsoft approach to zero trust very unique. The ability to have those pre-canned messages, that that white glove treatment, if you want to call it, with users. Talk a little bit more about the rest of the Microsoft picture and, and how they approach Zero. Yeah, the word you used was unique. I think that Microsoft's absolutely in a position where their solution has potential and qualities about it that is unparalleled. And I think some of that is simply because of so much of the experience in terms of the cloud platform that Microsoft has control over giving you some examples the world's foremost operating system from end users anyway in windows and the most popular server at least in the productivity and collaboration environments is windows server so microsoft has ownership um, 
production quality control over the operating system. Office 365 Online is probably the world's most popular productivity and collaboration environment. Uh, so the data layer essentially is, is owned and operated by Microsoft. And also Microsoft owns the world's most popular identity provisioning solutions in on-prem Active Directory and Azure Active Directory, which is the, the cloud identity solution. And the other piece of that is Microsoft makes it incredibly comfortable for third party tools to integrate with Azure Active Directory. So if you're using things that have benefit your organization for any length of time, you've had a good deal of success and you're tracking towards an increased Microsoft adoption story in the Microsoft Cloud, whether it's M365, Office 365 or Azure, it's very comfortable for, for admins to integrate the solutions that they've used with Azure Active Directory. <clears throat> and I think that is that continuity of experience I mentioned earlier as folks move from SharePoint to OneDrive to Outlook to see the exact same guardrails in place as they navigate that productivity and collaboration journey from one operating system to a different device, perhaps it's the same kind of messaging, it's the same sort of access control experience, whether they're on a mobile device browser or whether they're using the rich client on the PC, the expectation is the same. You're in a location that's trusted by the organization, you're on a device that is somehow known to the organization, whether it's registered um, to the organization, corporate account in Azure Active Directory, or you're using applications that have been approved by the corporate IT staff, the internal operations teams. And that experience and ability to manage and monitor data devices and identity all within the kind of same spectrum of controls is not something that you see anywhere else. I do think that there are other vendors, platform providers that will probably rival Microsoft at some point down the road as uh, things continue to centralize. Google's got an amazing productivity and collaboration suite where they don't quite have the same capabilities on that device side. But there are organizations, school districts, for instance, universities that have tens of thousands of Chrome OS devices that are inside the device fleet and Google's controls are increasing in capability. So I don't think this will live forever, but I do think that Microsoft is well ahead of the curve very clearly has the pole position on that kind of unique full spectrum security solution experience when it comes to zero trust. And even if Google's coming, they're, they're still years away from rivaling in the functional capability that Microsoft has provided. So it's, it's a really easy bet for organizations to plant their flag on the Microsoft tech stack if they're looking for immediate time to value. Yeah, and, and there's something else that's a little bit unique about the Microsoft solution, which is a lot of organizations are already working in the Office 365 or Microsoft 365 environment and have enterprise licensing, which means that they automatically get access to all of the different tools in the Microsoft suite that allow them to do a zero trust deployment. At this point, it's just a matter of putting those puzzle pieces together, those policies and making sure identity and devices are properly onboarded and working down that technical solution to really make sure that they're sticking within the confines of the zero trust strategy principles. 
Yeah, one of the things that you and I have chatted about before is the challenges to adopting zero trust and the irony of these amazing enterprise bundled high value license sets is that admins from one iteration of an IT staff to the next don't always know what's in those bundles. So one one in particular you called out is the M365E5 license is just absolutely loaded with value. And it's possible for you to spend 90% of your daily career experience in one subsection of that license without being exposed to all of it. I do think there's a magnificent capability across the board if you can learn it and master it and implement it into your production environments. One of those adoption challenges is certainly that there's a whole lot going on in those licenses and having exposure to all of those things in a way that allows you to connect the dots. I do probably think that's an area that Microsoft will have to continue to improve is really socializing everything that's in those licenses, because I do think that the ability to implement the Microsoft controls versus perhaps some of the competition in the marketplace is quite easy. I like to say, I like to describe it in terms of an entry floor. I think the entry floor to adoption is much lower than people realize and perhaps the mastery that's required for some of the other identity and access management solutions. One that comes to mind, for instance, is Cisco ICE. It's It can be incredibly complicated to figure out how to map your enterprise architecture against some of those tools, whereas the existing adoption that's probably inherent in your organization, Office 365 is the one that you mentioned, makes it easy for you to get started very quickly. But I do run into folks that don't realize what they have at their fingertips sometimes, that they're already paying for a particular technology that's gone unleveraged. And that's actually been a lot of fun for me as a security admin in the space to help those light bulbs come on for people who have been SharePoint admins or Exchange admins for years and now realizing the leverage that they have at their fingertips with these newly adopted enterprise uh, license bundles in the ETH of M365 license framework. It's been a, a really interesting and satisfying kind of part of my day job to help folks understand what they have that's just around the corner. Yeah, you mentioned that the, the barriers for entry in the Microsoft security stack are pretty low. If, especially if they have those kinds of licensing scenarios already, how should they get started? What should be the first step thinking about the Microsoft security? Unfortunately, it's just the nature of business and the line of work that, that I'm in and that Blue Voyant is in. A lot of times organizations go looking for a service provider because there's probably some breach baggage that's involved or there's not always, I guess there's not always foresight before folks move to the cloud that they want a secure adoption framework in place before they migrate their on-premise state to the cloud. I We probably could break this answer up into kind of two different sort of end user profiles in, in terms of organizations. One is an organization that's planning to the move, planning for that move to the cloud. And sometimes I like to say that the journey to the cloud begins with a single mailbox. I think that's actually really common is folks just simply trying to move away from that on-prem exchange box they start that cloud adoption journey by by moving to Exchange Online. And I, I just would say that the best thing to do is to stay, take stock of what you have and consider what the security controls are of any platform before you move it to the cloud, whether it's Microsoft or GCP or AWS. It, it really doesn't matter. All I would say is a tabletop exercise where you consider what the security controls are before you start moving things upstairs. And it's 
I don't think it's that surprising. It's really not very common. Folks are concerned and invested in the time and resourcing to move the just to actually do the migration that they're not thinking about the security components. And then that second persona we probably run into is folks who've already moved and realized that they didn't put the security controls and guardrails in place. And now they're trying to play catch up. And I think that's the more difficult experience far and away because your users, once they get comfortable and accustomed to having things running a certain way in terms of their their productivity experience, from the time that they wake up and sign in in that kind of remote workforce scenario and suddenly you start to put some preventative measures and mechanics in place like oh i can no longer use my corporate email alias to sign into dropbox or box that's interesting i've been doing that for the past six months what's different and you're backpedaling to try to put those end user messaging campaigns in place but your productivity environment is already exposed if you don't put those production level controls out there before those end user messaging campaigns. So things get a little bit disjointed. Suddenly that sort of operational model has people creating tickets and just overloading your security operations teams or more often the case is somebody who just plays the security person on Friday afternoon all, all of a sudden has all of these tickets that they have to close. So being mindful of the security operation before you move to the cloud is actually a big deal. And there's plenty of the world that hasn't started that migration journey or they're midstream. And I would just encourage folks to do that kind of tabletop exercise, pull out the whiteboard, grab the markers, actually start drawing things. And then you can start investigating, okay, if I am moving from Exchange on-prem to Exchange online, what's afforded by Microsoft to natively protect those inboxes before I go to a third party vendor, start investigating who can help me with phishing or business email compromise, you'll discover that within that E5 license, there's an entire set of tools specifically for mail hygiene in Defender for Office, protecting uh, the inboxes from impersonation, from improper forwarding, certain kinds of data from being allowed to leave your organization. An example I like to give, if you're Wayne Enterprises, you wanna protect the way that people are talking about the Batmobile, you can't just migrate the R&D department's Batmobile blueprints to the cloud without an encryption and protection scheme that's associated with it. So just doing that mindfulness exercise where you're thinking about what you're moving and what it's going to take to secure it is, is always step number one. And honestly, somehow it's the step that's that's most often missed. Yeah. Set forth your strategy, assess what your current business goals are, what your capabilities are, and what tools you already have that can support those capabilities moving into the cloud. Those are the most important things to start with, if you ask me. It sounds so cliche though, doesn't it? You're like, you're moving to the cloud. Just think about the things you're moving and how to secure them before you move them. Like when we when we talk about it in those terms, it feels somewhat cliche. And yet it's amazing how that old adage of five minutes of planning is going to prevent five, 15 minutes of work or whatever it is. It's amazing how often that cloud migration is started by migration experts, architects who have a masterful capability to move things from one place to another but do not have a community of practice around securing those things. So when you hire someone to do migrations, it's not always part of that proposal to do it in a secure fashion, which you know, I, I'd love to see the trend moving in a bit of a different direction on that point.
Yeah, it's akin to hiring a moving company to move boxes from point A to point B. They're they're going to do exactly what you ask them to. They're not necessarily going to care about whether or not the destination is secure and safe. That's your job. And if you don't spend the time to say, okay, what controls, what protections do we need when we move our data out to the cloud, how can we expect a third party or even our internal teams who are going to be moving this data, these capabilities out to the cloud to know whether or not they're going to be secure in the end state or not. Don, I really like that example, and I'm going to be borrowing it, if you don't mind, if I could license that example <laughs> from you, because we know none of us like to move, and it, it's you get, you just, moving is arduous, uh, but remembering to strap things down, remembering to go the speed limit, mapping out your route ahead of time to know if your truck can fit on the the back prairie road that you're supposed to be on all of those things matter and of course as you said is the destination a secure destination or am i just dropping stuff off on the driveway it's such a good example i love it so thinking about that risk in an organization and getting started how does somebody balance that risk of moving too fast with the quality of service and the impact to the customer. That's a good example. I think Cisco's was something like insights at the speed of change, which we could borrow that. I like that a lot. One of the coolest pieces about the Microsoft tech stack, especially when it comes to the identity and access management controls, is you can oftentimes put the policies in a kind of reconnaissance information gathering mode before you push them into production. So of course things need to be secure. And if you're in a position where you've got mission critical estate upstairs in intellectual property that's already in an unguarded sort of repository online, then there may not be a lot you can do about it, but simply to put a production level policy in place before you do that socialization with your end users to help them understand what the access path is going to look like. Uh, and that might be a little bit disruptive. That's just part of it. Sometimes you have to make that judgment call. But a lot of times you have an opportunity to put a policy set in place that allows you to gather a little bit of information. I'll give you an example. I think that organizations are pretty good uh, about putting the managed equipment in the hands of their end users in terms of a laptop, whether it's a PC or Mac, it's usually corporate issued. And so it's probably got a little bit of device management controls in place. It's enrolled in Jamf, it's enrolled in Intune. But sometimes organizations don't have that kind of careful mindfulness about mobile devices. A lot of times folks are simply allowed to connect their personal mobile devices to a corporate environment without any guardrails. One of the tools that Microsoft has, which is one of my favorite because of that low entry floor, is called Conditional Access. And it's part of Microsoft's Azure Active Directory Premium License Plan with any of those M365 bundles. And what it allows you to do is create the scaffolding for a policy and test what the results of that policy would be before impacting the production environment. So, for example, You've got all your corporate laptops locked down, but you've been allowing folks to log in to their inboxes from their mobile device. And you want to get a sense of, are people using the browser for Outlook web access? Are they using the native iOS mail app? Are people downloading Outlook for the mobile client from the Play Store or the Apple Store? Or are they using some kind of third-party application that you're not familiar with? And you can create a conditional access policy that goes in reconnaissance mode where it's just collecting the results of the information to say, hey, 
the HR department in particular is really good about downloading the Outlook app, whereas the legal department simply prefers to use the browser to access the Outlook web uh, access gateway. The marketing department has this specialized communications tool that bridges into email over one of the email protocols or standards. And suddenly you get a really good sense of what people are doing and why they're doing it before you put a production level control in place. And so let's say that you just, we're gonna force everybody to use Outlook because I can put application policies in place that govern the way Outlook behaves. For instance, you know, folks aren't allowed to screenshot from the app itself or cut, copy and paste between Outlook and an application that isn't managed. And before you put a super disruptive policy in place like that, enforcing the use of the Outlook web client, you can get a sense of the kind of impact you're gonna have on your users beforehand. So I think that information gathering phase can be really helpful when you're trying to minimize the impact you're gonna have on your users and certainly your, your internal operations staff. If you don't actually do that work, it's likely they're going to get a whole lot of help desk tickets and if you have the opportunity to anticipate what that's going to look like, your users are sure going to appreciate you you doing that. And I, I just think that's probably part of the ethic of care in, in the workplaces that we're in now is to do that kind of intelligence gathering, if you will, before you put things in place. And Microsoft's really good about that. You put tools and policies in a report only mode to gauge and assess what the impact would be on your production environment. And I, I think that Microsoft's clearly in the end user outcomes and quality of life business uh, and has been for a long time. Uh, and that shows in the way they develop their security tool set. Yeah, that's an important message to really get across. Understand what your users are doing and how they do their jobs. It's important in developing those policies and those communications. Thanks for listening to this episode of Demystifying Zero Trust. We hope you found the content both interesting and insightful. Subscribe to this podcast to continue to explore why and how organizations should adopt Zero Trust.